So I, uh, probably like many of you, grew up playing sports, played soccer, basketball, baseball for one season. Uh, Arab people, we don't, we don't do baseball. Um, we don't have that sport. Cricket, we don't even have cricket. Anything where you got to hit something with a bat, we don't, we don't do that. So that was, that was bad. Uh, but I played sports really pretty much all throughout high school, all throughout college. Even I did a lot of uh, intramural sports and all that stuff. And because of that, it was really easy for me to stay in shape. Um, it wasn't really hard to stay in shape, not because I was just like always working out as a high schooler or college student, but I was just always running around. You know, it's easy to stay in shape when you got a coach who's making you run, who's making you do stuff. And in college, you know, you're on all these intramural sports. And even walking across campus is infinitely more walking than I'll probably do in a week. You know what I mean? Um, so it was really easy to stay in shape. But then I got out of college and I got a big boy job and I don't have spring break or summer and I don't play sports anymore, right? So it's a lot harder to stay in shape. Like I get tired now when I go up three flights of stairs to my apartment and I hate myself, right? It's just kind of one of those things I can feel it. Um, and, and that's why I like working out. Not in the sense that it's a hobby of mine. Clearly that's not the case. Um, but I like the idea of getting in shape. I like the idea of physically getting my body in shape. It's better for me emotionally. I sleep better at night. I look better to my wife, right? There's just so many benefits. There's so much value in getting in shape. But let me just be honest with you. Um, one of my biggest insecurities is walking into a gym by myself. I hate it. I hate it. And the reason why is because I don't know how to work out. Like, I'm just not good at it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what workouts go good together. I don't know what muscles should work out on the same day. I don't know when to take a break. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm just not good at working out, right? Soccer players, we didn't have to do weight training. We just ran. You know what I'm saying? And so I'll walk into a gym when I'm by myself, and I'll go straight to the one thing that I know to do. It's bench press. You know what I mean? So I'll go. That's easy. I'll go to the bench press, put some weight on there. I'll start, you know. I'll start pressing a little bit. Not too much, though, right? I don't want to be the guy that gets the, the bar stuck on me by myself like an idiot, then I'm yelling for help. <laughs> yeah, that's a fear. Um, but that means I also can't go real heavy on the weight, so I look real weak. So it's a, it's a lose-lose on the bench press. Then, you know, I'll meander over to the dumbbells. I can do some dumbbells, right? It's easy. Do a little tricep, kind of work those out. And then those machines. I don't know what half those things do, man. They do all these they, they do all these. So what I do, I don't want anyone to know that I don't know. So I'll, I'll take a couple trips to the bathroom to the water fountain, and I'll kind of like walk by, discreetly look at the picture that tells you what muscle group it works out. You know what I'm saying? You know that. Walking by, oh, biceps, thought I did back. You know, like you just, you're not really sure what's going on. You're just trying to figure out what in the world is happening. Uh, but here's the deal. I don't work out as much as I would like to, not because I don't see the value in it. I know the value of working out. I've been in shape to know the value. I want that to be something that I do more regularly. The reason why I don't work out as much as I want to or as much as I should is because I don't know how. And so often, the thing that keeps you from trying something isn't that you don't see the value in it. Isn't that, it's not that it's not something that you want to try. The reason why so often we don't do something or we don't try something is because we just don't know how? And we've hung this entire series, Fixer Upper, we've built this entire series that we're concluding tonight on this one premise, on this one idea that the pursuit of godliness promises to add value to every area of your life. 
that we're all little fixer-uppers walking around, right? And we've got areas of our lives that we feel like we want to get better at. We've got areas of our lives that are lacking value or lacking fulfillment, and we want to bring life and value to those areas, to your dating relationships, to your character, to whatever area, your spiritual life. And we said that the one thing that the Apostle Paul taught us, and, and we spent a lot of time on this in week one, but the Apostle Paul taught us that the one thing that you could pursue, the one thing that would add value to every single area of your life, not make perfect, not make everything easy and happy and like a fairy tale, you know, movie that ends out really well. No, no, that it would add value, that it would add value to every area of life was the pursuit of godliness. And some of you would look at this idea of the pursuit of godliness and you might feel how I feel when I walk into a gym. Hey, great idea, but how in the world do I do that? And let's just pretend for a second that you're convinced this is true right? Let's just assume for a second that I taught on this. We talked about this in week one of this series. Let's just assume I did such a good job. Let's really pretend. Let's pretend I killed it to where you're like, oh my gosh, he's so right. I've never been sure of anything in my life. Like I'm more sure of what he said than what my name is, right? Like let's just pretend you were that convinced by what I talked about in week one. And if it's your first time, just pretend you were here, right? And pretend you know me and you know all about my life. Let's pretend for a second that you're convinced that the pursuit of godliness promises to add value to every area of your life. The question that you should have and the question that I would have is how in the world do you pursue godliness? What does that even mean? What does that look like? How in the world do you know if you're even making any progress? Because it just seems like a lot of Christianese language to me, the pursuit of godliness. What does that even mean? What does it look like? And so tonight, we're going to get super practical and super tangible as to what it looks like for you and for me to pursue godliness. We're going to get super practical and super tangible as to what it looks like for us to develop our Christian character and to begin to reflect the heart of God. And in week one, we talked about this, this idea that it promises to add value to every area of your life. And last week, we looked at a passage um, in, in 2 Peter. And we're going to look at the second half of that passage this week. But the first half of this passage, in case you weren't with us last week, essentially here's what the first half of the passage taught. It said that the pursuit of godliness isn't something that we could have done completely on our own. We learned last week that your heavenly father actually went towards, to extraordinary lengths to make the pursuit of godliness a reality. Right? Last week we talked about that there's this thing called sin, and sin had power over every person that has ever lived. But then Jesus came. And what that power, the sin did, what the power, the sin, excuse me, sin that had power over us, what that did was it limited our capacity. It limited our capacity to pursue godliness. And then Jesus came. And Jesus lived a morally perfect life. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And then Jesus rose from the grave three days later. And as a result of all of that, Jesus broke the power of sin. Therefore, whoever puts their faith in Jesus, right, No longer does sin have power over that person. And because of Jesus, we've been given brand new capacity, brand new capability to pursue godliness in a way that we never have been able to before. And so the first half of this passage that we looked at last week talked about what God did. And the second half that we're going to look at today talks all about what me and you do as a result. It talks about our responsibility. And so we're going to look here. We're going to start 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For this very reason, 
make every effort to add to your faith, right? For what reason? For the reason we just talked about. For the very reason that God enabled this process. He made possible for you and for me to pursue a life of godliness. So for this very reason, for the reason that God already took care of his part, now it's your turn. Make every effort to add to your faith. Make every effort. Do everything in your power. Do everything you know how to do. His spirit, Peter's spirit as he's writing this, is one of encouragement. Hey, try your best. Don't worry about failing. Don't worry about getting it wrong. Don't worry about the fact that you don't feel spiritual as the next person. No, no. Make every effort. Use everything at your disposal. Make every effort to add to your faith. Now, this idea of adding to your faith, to add literally means to furnish. Right? To furnish your faith, and what Peter's about to give us is a list of virtues that exemplify what it means to pursue godliness. So, you know, right, you, you move into an apartment, you've got to furnish it. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in high school, I just thought you, like, walked into an apartment, and it was all, like, set up. You, know, you didn't have to go to Ikea. I didn't know what Ikea was. I didn't need to, right? But you didn't have to work, right? Someone will build the house for you, and someone will lease the apartment to you, but it is your responsibility to furnish that house. It's your responsibility to furnish that apartment. And then Peter is here basically saying, hey, look, God has given us this faith, and he's enabled us to pursue godliness. Now, it is your responsibility to furnish your faith with the following virtues. And each of these virtues exemplifies what it means to pursue godliness. Each of these virtues that we're about to look at is something that each and every single one of us can apply to our lives, and it's something that reflects the heart of God. And here's what I hope happens. That as we go through these virtues, you kind of feel a little bad, like me. I was studying for this message, and I thought, I'm the worst person in the world, because I'm like two for seven on these virtues. I can't believe my wife married me. Because here's what's true about these virtues, is that it should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because what we talked about in week one is we're all a work in progress. We're not all there, and none of us are ever going to get fully there. But as we pursue these virtues... And as we make an attempt, as we make every effort to make these virtues a reality in our lives, your life is going to start to look radically different in a good way. And so many areas of your life are going to become healthier. And in a really, really special way, as you pursue these virtues, you'll start to transform. As you pursue these virtues, as you pursue godliness, you literally start to become a different person in a good way. And it's like you transform. And that's what the pursuit of godliness does, is it transforms you. You start to look radically different than you ever did before. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you kind of the whole idea for tonight's message. And what Peter is kind of giving us in this very first line is that God designed transformation to require your participation. This idea that, hey, the more you pursue godliness and the more we seek to exemplify these virtues that reflect godliness in our own lives, we'll begin to transform. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen just because, right? We talked about how, look, it, godliness doesn't just happen over time, right? You got like an old person, and they're not just more godly because they're older. That's not how it works. It requires your and my participation because God designed transformation to require your participation. So we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to participate and what it looks like for us to take our responsibility seriously. So he says, make every effort to add to your faith. And the very first thing he tells us is goodness. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, 
Well, what, what is goodness? Goodness here describes moral excellence and character and having integrity, right? So someone who exemplifies goodness is someone where if you were to look at their life, there would be zero discrepancy between their convictions and their actions, right? You, there's no discrepancy between their public life and their private life. Someone who exemplifies goodness is somebody who lives a life that is louder than words, and here's why this is so important. And here's why this adds infinite value to so many different areas of your life. is because it is impossible, and you know this, it is impossible to experience lasting influence and meaningful relationships without personal integrity. You know, it is impossible to have lasting influence in anybody's life and to experience meaningful relationships with people that love you without personal integrity. Because the second, you know this, the second that there's a discrepancy between your public life and your private life. The second there's a discrepancy between your convictions and your actions, you begin to erode the very thing that you absolutely need for influence and for relationships. And it's trust. And the second there's a discrepancy between your convictions and actions, and the second you begin to erode trust from people, people stop listening and people stop getting close. The second you begin to erode trust, people stop listening and people stop getting close. And you've seen this happen like in the public sphere, right? You've seen this with some of the big names and it's really sad, right? Guys like Tiger Woods and Lance Armstrong, all of a sudden for so many years there were secrets that were being hidden and then all of a sudden their private life caught up and there was a discrepancy between that and their public life and it ended their careers, we might see it in the public life, but you know what this is like in your life too. In fact, there are some of you who have been hurt by somebody who lacked personal integrity. You have been hurt by somebody who lacked goodness. It ruined a family. It ruined a relationship. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you have felt the gut-wrenching feeling of causing pain in somebody else's life because of your lack of integrity. And it's so hard to gain, it's so hard that influence and building a meaningful relationship and it can be lost in a second without personal integrity. It'll ruin marriages, it'll ruin influence, it'll ruin friendships, it'll ruin relationships. And so Peter says, hey, add this to your faith. You want to add value to your life? Add moral goodness. Let me tell you this, no one ever regretted living a life that was louder than words. So here's the question. Do your decisions, would your decisions, public or private, encourage or erode trust? I'm not going to answer it for you. I can't. But think about it. Would your decisions, the way that you live publicly or privately, encourage or erode trust? So Peter goes on, into goodness, into goodness, add knowledge, knowledge. Now, this isn't like I'm going to college kind of knowledge and I'm getting some information that I'm never going to use again kind of knowledge, right? You know what I'm saying, right? You seniors are like, man, I could have got my degree in two years. Core classes were a waste of time. It's not an intellectual kind of knowledge. This knowledge here describes practical wisdom and discernment. Watch this. Practical wisdom and discernment that is acquired, Practical wisdom and discernment that is acquired, meaning it did not originate with you. Something that is acquired means that it didn't originate with you and you had to go seek it out to get it. And so Peter says, I want you to add to your faith, I want you to add to your faith, knowledge, practical wisdom and discernment that is sought out, that does not originate with you. The reason why Peter would say that is because we know this, that the best kind of wisdom is sought out, not found within. The best kind of wisdom, the most life-changing and life 
impacting kind of wisdom is not found with, it's sought out, it's not found within. And let me just tell you from personal experience, some of the most life-changing and life-impacting nuggets of wisdom did not come into my life from an epiphany after I was taking a walk or cutting the grass. Some of the most life-changing and life-impacting nuggets of wisdom and ideas and discernment came from either my personal study of God's Word, His breath on a page, or from people in my life who loved me and walked with Jesus longer than me. Because the best kind of wisdom is sought out, not found within. And, And isn't it so true? We could all, myself, look back at our lives and see where our own epiphany kind of wisdom got us, right? We could all look back and think, oh, yeah, that was, that was my bad. My bad, let me get a redo, right? Because the best kind of wisdom is sought out, not found within. And so here's the question. Is, that, is there a voice with permission to speak candidly into your life? Is there a voice that you've given permission to to speak candidly into your life? It could be the Bible it could be a person. And isn't it so true that oftentimes it isn't what we want to hear? That on the front end it's annoying to hear from somebody about something that we don't want to hear about, but we're so thankful we heard it on the back end? Because Peter says, hey, add that kind of knowledge to your faith. Yeah, you want to talk about something that will add value to your life. Yeah, that kind of knowledge will add value. And then he says, and to knowledge, and to knowledge... Add self-control. This is, this is huge. Self-control is, is massive. This is the mastery of yourself. The mastery of yourself. And I think there's two flavors, Baskin-Robbins, two flavors of self-control, if you will. And I think the first flavor of self-control is self-control of restraint. Self-control of restraint. A, a picture is being able to put yourself on a leash, okay? There, listen, there might not be something more dangerous than you not being able to put yourself on a leash in college, Okay? We all know what college is like. I, I went, believe it or not, and I graduated. I made it out alive. But look, I know what college is like. I'm not even joking you. In my apartment complex that I lived in every weekend at the pool, it really was like MTV spring break. Like it, it's not just a joke. They really do that kind of stuff, and it's crazy, right? You are surrounded by so many things, so many temptations, that guy, that girl, this party. There are so many different things that you want to be a part of and maybe try and experiment with and so many different things that you're inundated with. There might not be something more dangerous in college than not having mastery of yourself, than not being able to put yourself on a leash. Self-control of restraint. And the reason why that's so important, the reason why that could add so much value, Proverbs 25, 18 tells us this. It says that a man or woman without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In the ancient Near East, um, whenever a city did not have any walls, it was vulnerable to harm and trouble from any attacking an enemy nation. In fact, for any ancient Near East city, there was nothing worse than not having walls up around the city. It was the first and most important line of defense. It was essentially a lame duck just waiting for trouble and harm if it didn't have any walls. In the same way, this proverb says that a person who lacks self-control of restraint is like a city with no walls. You could not be more vulnerable to harm trouble, and bad decisions that will lead you to regret, self-control of restraint. And, and here's the deal, right? When you allow yourself to be controlled by something other than you, you get tunnel vision. 
right? When you allow yourself to be controlled by something other than you, you can't see outside of the moment. And allowing yourself to be controlled by anything other than you, whether it be a temptation or emotion or, or a substance, right, or whatever it is, alcohol, some kind of drug, allowing yourself to be controlled by anything other than your normal state is like getting on an airplane with a pilot who's only certified to drive a school bus. No good is going to come from that. It's like a bull who sees red. You can't think outside of the moment. You can't see. You get tunnel vision. And let me give you a perfect example. Sex, right? In the moment, man, he looks so good and, and she looks so fine. And this is just going to be so fun. And in the moment, it's going to feel good. And in the moment, it's so enticing. And in the moment, it seems harmless. And you know what? In the moment, it will be fun. In the moment, it will feel good. In the moment, it is super enticing. And in the moment, it is seemingly harmless. But how foolish would we be to believe and live our lives thinking that every decision we made in the moment stays in the moment. You know that's not true. I know that's not true because we've all lived long enough to know that every decision made in the moment can't wait to get out of that moment. So Peter says, hey, add self-control of restraint. We can all think back to moments and often think, man, I wish... I had that. And you know what? I don't even have time to really get into this one, but the best kind of self-control of restraint is the one that doesn't even put yourself in a position to have to make a last-second decision. The one that says, now, I'm not even, I know me. The best thing you could do is to know that you're bad at saying no to a temptation because you don't even put yourself there. Nope, I'm not going to go see her. Uh uh I'm not going to go. No, 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 no. You don't even put yourself in the position to have to say no. Self-control of restraint, Peter says. And then the, 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 the fat-free um, version, the sugar-free version, Baskin-Robbins, is self-control of discipline. Self-control of discipline. This is the kind of self-control that says, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do, right? I'm going to go work out when I said I was going to work out. Guilty, right? I've got to work on that. Golly, I'm a terrible pastor. Um, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to study and not fail, right? Some of y'all would get B's and even A's if you could say no to Netflix and study for your exam. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Stop worrying about breaking bad and have a little self-control of discipline. Downton Abbey's going to be there. You can come back to it later. Self-control of discipline. That means that when you stay on budget and you don't splurge, that means when you walk into Target to buy toothpaste, you just buy toothpaste. You don't walk out with $150 worth of merchandise. Target's crazy, man. I can't. I can't even. I, me and my wife, every time, I'm like, I don't even... I don't even know how. I can't even explain it. It's like defying gravity. It doesn't make any sense, but it's impossible. Maybe I should just stop going to Target, right? I don't know where to shop if I don't go to Target. <laughs> but self-control of discipline is saying, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to stick to it. And here's what I love about this idea, is that you can honor God with the way that you study just as much as you honor God when you come to the living room and sing. That you can honor God with the way that you manage your money, just like you honor God when you open up your Bible to read it. Self-control of discipline. Do what you say that you're going to do. And you all know this. You, you, already, you, you already have a, a ton of ideas of how this would add value to so many different areas of your life. And so Peter says, add self-control. Self-control of restraint. Self-control of discipline. And so here's, here's the question. Is what do you allow to control you that isn't you. What is it? You're the only one that knows. Maybe someone else should know, but I just want you to think to yourself, 
what do you allow to control you that isn't you? And then he says, and to self-control, to self-control, I want you to add perseverance. Perseverance. Now, this isn't like the little engine that could. Remember the Titans, favorite movie of all time, kind of perseverance, okay? Um, this is a kind of perseverance um, that talks about patience in adversity. Patience in adversity. In fact, this word perseverance literally means to remain under something that is heavy, to remain under a heavy load, to remain there even if it's difficult, to remain and endure even if you don't want to anymore. It's the kind of perseverance that, is, that, that, that uh, describes patience in adversity. Because here's what's true. Life will have adversity. Life will have its difficulties. Following Jesus and pursuing godliness will have its difficulties. There will be times when your pursuit of godliness will cost you something. There will be times when your pursuit of godliness will leave you on an island because nobody else is. And you don't need me to tell you that life has inevitable difficulty and trials. right? Not because it's the fault of God, but because it's a reality of life on this side of heaven. Just look at the cross where Jesus was crucified. Trials will come. Difficulty will come. And this kind of perseverance that Peter tells us to add is one that endures, right? You keep on keeping on. You don't stop. You keep going. And, and here, here's why, right? Because you know this. Patience in adversity results into personal maturity. Patience in adversity results in personal maturity. That when you're able to endure and push through, there is growth and there is development that could not have happened any other way. And if trials and difficulty are inevitable, regardless of what you believe or who you are, why not use it as a chance to grow and mature? And what would it look like to have patience in adversity? In the words of journey, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing in a heavenly father that loves you and wants to see you through. Don't turn your back on a faith in a heavenly father that didn't cause what happened, but loves you and wants to see you through. Peter says, yeah, that kind of perseverance, developing that kind of character, yeah, yeah that will serve you well because it will absolutely result in personal maturity. So here's the question. Will you allow inevitable trials or difficulty to ruin you or to grow you? Inevitable is the key word. Will you allow inevitable trials or difficulty to ruin you or to grow you? What would it look like to add patience and adversity to your faith? And he goes on, and to, and to perseverance, add godliness. It's kind of funny that he would use the word godliness in a list of things that describes godliness, right? It's like, bro, did you run out of words? <laughs> What's the deal, homie? You know? um, but let me just kind of unpack this. This idea of godliness means that you would live in a way that is pleasing to God, that you would live in a way that is pleasing to God, not because you want to uh, make God happy or not because God's just waiting there and if you mess up, he's going to get angry, right? You're not trying to pacify God. It's like this. You know how when you were younger, you had like maybe an older brother or sister or you had a coach or you had a teacher or you had someone that you really looked up to and like you just wanted to do everything you could to do right by them? Not because you were afraid of them, right? Not because you were going to get in trouble if you didn't do right or not because you were going to get benched or not because your brother wasn't going to be your brother anymore, but you just revered them and respected them so much that everything in you just wanted to live in a way that would win their respect, that you just, you just wanted to live in a way that was pleasing to them. It was, it was so innocent, and in a lot of ways even potentially healthy. 
It's that idea that we would have so much reverence and respect and honor and love for a heavenly father that saved us that we would want to do everything we could and everything we knew how to live in a way that pleased him. That we would treat others the way that Jesus treated them when he died on the cross. That we would give ourselves to people. That we would love them no matter what. What would it look like? And for those of you that aren't believers, you're not Christians, you can even ignore this one. Really, I mean, you you can technically ignore all of them, but especially this one, okay, that's fine. But for those of you in the room that would have a faith, for those of you that say that you do follow Jesus and you have a faith in Heavenly Father, this one ought to be something we take seriously. And so the question is, are the decisions you make worthy of the faith that you profess? Are the decisions that you make, the way that you live your life, the things that you do, the things that you say, worthy of the faith that you profess? And then he says, and to godliness, add brotherly kindness. You know what this is? This is, this is the random acts of kindness. This is just being nice to people. This is just being considerate of other people's feelings, being considerate of what other people are going through, and just being nice, just being a nice person, not being a jerk, right? I was at World Market a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, Bed Bath & Beyond, World Market, it's a marriage thing, but I like World Market. So I was at World Market, and me and Julie were buying stuff, my wife, and, and, and I had this coupon, because I've got a World Market account, and uh, no shame in that either. So I get coupons sent to my emails, and I had a coupon that was like, get 15% off if you spend $30 or more. I was like, I'm going to use that, you know, I got a 15%. And so we go in there, and we spend, you know, more than $30 to get that 15%. I'm trying to pull out my email, and can't find it. And I was like, all right, and I was like, listen, bro. I promise I got the email. (laughs) I know you got one under the register that you can just scan and we'll be done, right? And he's like, nope, sir, I need the email. I was like, yeah, okay. Like, come on, what what you got? And he's like, no, I really need the email. I said, okay, I hate you. Um, (laughs) And so there's a woman behind me, a little bit older, and she's like, oh, you need the coupon? I was like, yeah. (laughs) And she's like, you can use mine. I was like, huh? You don't. You don't have $30 worth of merchandise? I think you can only use it one time. And she's like, no, no, it's okay. It expires there. You can use it. I thought, oh, my goodness. I'm not going to say no twice. I was like, absolutely. And scan that coupon. I got my 15%. Like, I wanted her. I wanted to give her the 850 that I saved. You know what I mean? Like, it was just so nice. It was just so kind. She didn't have to do it. She didn't even know me. I'm probably never going to see her again. You know what I mean? I hope she has a great day today just because she did that to me. But she just showed brotherly kindness, warm friendliness, just being nice to people. Just because. Being considerate of other people. Being able to read the room and understand that some people are just having a day. Understanding that maybe even if you have a right thing to say, it could be the wrong time to say it. So just be chill. You know what I mean? If you're in a relationship, you definitely understand that one. But brotherly kindness. And so here's, here's the question. What's it like being on the other side of you? That one got me. Because I can be such a jerk sometimes. Real talk. What's it like being on the other side of you? You might have to ask somebody else to get an honest answer. You're going to be a little generous, just a little bit generous to yourself. What's it like being on the other side of you? And then he concludes and he says, and to brotherly kindness add love. Love. And this is the highest form of love in all of the New Testament. This idea of love here communicates what, what the, the kind of love that Jesus showed us on the cross. That when Jesus came to die for our sins while we were still sinners, in other words, he came to give even when we did not deserve. That he came to give with no expectation of getting. In fact, this kind of love, the highest form of love that this describes, gives without the expectation of getting, giving. 
that, getting, excuse me, that you're going to give with the, without the expectation of getting, that you're going to give love not because you're going to get something back, but because your Heavenly Father loved you, that you're going to love not because you're hoping of getting something in return, not because, of, not because somebody deserves it, not because they're going to scratch your back. No, no, you're going to love for the mere fact and reason that your Heavenly Father loved you first, that Jesus' command was, look, you just need to love one another like I have loved you, and it is by that love, not by how much you know, not by how many verses you memorize, and not by how many times you go to church. Jesus says, it is by this love that they will know you are my disciple, that this kind of love would be the very thing that marked anyone who followed Jesus and be the very thing that made us distinct. That we would seek to give this highest form of love, of giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, no matter whether we ever got anything in return. Could you imagine? I mean, like seriously, could you imagine if all people who profess faith in Jesus actually gave this kind of love? Could you imagine what your friend groups would look like? What your families would look like? You'd be an amazing boyfriend or girlfriend if you learned how to give it. You'd be a great husband and wife if you were going to get a leg up on it. Learn how to love this way. Could you imagine what your schools would look like? <laughs> imagine what our world would look like if we started giving this kind of love. And so here's the question. Do you love with no strings attached? Like really, really, do you love with no strings attached? And if we could just look back at this verse this is, what, this is what Peter says. He says, and for this reason, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. He says, add to your faith. God has, has built this, this faith for us and he's given us this faith and he's enabled us. Now it is your turn. And as you read through those, which one of them stuck out to you? Better question, which questions that I asked kind of made you mad at me? Which questions kind of made you want to come drop kick me in the face after this was over? Those are the ones you should focus on. Those are the ones you should really think about. Because here's what you know about yourself and here's what I know about myself. That is, if these virtues, if we just go back real quick, if these virtues actually became a part of our lives, you would look a lot different. I would look a lot different. Areas of our lives would look a lot different. So different that some might say you look transformed. Because God designed transformation to require your participation, that we are to add to our faith. And I love the way that he ends this passage here in verse 8. And he says, for if you possess these qualities, if you exemplify these qualities, if these qualities are something that become a part of your life, if you exemplify them in increasing measure, little by little, step by step, it's not something's going to happen overnight. That's a long list of stuff. You could spend your whole life trying to make those things a part of your life. But as you possess them in increasing measure, little by little, little, it's a process, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they will prevent you from, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of Jesus. And this word knowledge here, it assumes a personal relationship. It's the kind of knowledge that only comes from having an intimate relationship with another person, kind of like a husband and a wife. There's a kind of knowledge that comes only from being in a relationship and in a marriage with each other. 
And so you could look at this verse and just kind of say that if you possess these in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your relationship with Jesus. I know I don't want to be ineffective and I don't want to be unproductive in my relationship with Jesus. Because the positive side of this would be that if you possess these in increasing measure, you will be productive and fruitful. You'll be productive, you'll be effective and fruitful and useful in your relationship with Jesus. Think about that. that. That rather than being ineffective, you would be useful. And rather than being unproductive, you would be fruitful. That as you possess these and these become to be exemplified in your life, that you would be useful to God. Is it encouraging? I hope it is to think that your heavenly father wants to use you. That's why a lot of those virtues dealt with other people. They dealt with day-to-day interactions with other people because your heavenly father wants to use you. And as he develops his character in you through your pursuit of his character, we start to show the love of a heavenly father to a world that needs it more than we could ever imagine. That as we possess these in increasing measure, we would be useful And then we would also be fruitful rather than unproductive. Something that's fruitful is something that gives life. Something something fruitful is something that's healthy, right? You have a vine and it has fruit or grapes that come off of it. It is fruitful. It is healthy. That your life would give life. That your life in different areas of your life would not be perfect, but they would be healthy, useful, and fruitful. And what those two things kind of sum up is this. They sum up a growing relationship with Jesus. A growing relationship, not a perfect, not a I've got it all together. No, no, a growing relationship with Jesus. That as we pursue these things, as we pursue these things that exemplify godliness, that's proof that we have a growing relationship with Jesus. And the reason why the living room exists, the reason why this church even exists, and I'm sure you've heard us talk about it, But we exist, and the reason why we do this every week is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That's our mission statement. That's why we exist. That's why we do what we do. That is our goal. That is our hope. That is our prayer, to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. That every day, maybe you would just take a step towards looking more like Jesus. We're so good at overcomplicating spirituality, and we want things to be deep, and we want them to be so hard to understand. And we want to get into the nitty-gritty. You know how Jesus described spirituality? Taking a step every day to look more like him. And live more like him. And as you do, as we pursue godliness, as defined here by Peter, different areas of your life will see life and value in ways they have never seen before. And, and what's so cool, is we will begin to reflect the character of a heavenly father that has a heart for you and a heart for every person that you come in contact with every single day. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you and we're thankful. We're thankful that um, you created a way for us to live differently, that you loved us enough to enable us to pursue godliness, knowing that it would add value to every area of our lives, but also knowing that it would reflect your character to world and need of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we conclude this series, you would give students courage, that you would give students courage to pursue 
your heart and your character, no matter how alone they feel or how hard it might be, that you would give them the courage to continue on and to pursue a life that reflects the heart and character of you. I pray that for all of us, and it is in Jesus' name, amen.